come, they were all with one accord in one place. And we have chosen that text from the very beginning. As we discussed with you, that means covenanted together. One accord, one place. That's what a church is supposed to be. And so, covenanted together means assembling together in oneness, sameness, having things in common. As we spent a couple of messages there discussing that. So, that is our desire, and that's what we are to be as a church. Now, as I said at the very beginning, we do not have to have a church covenant to be a church. But we do have to be covenanted together to be a church. And we are looking at the church covenant to refresh our minds of the blessing and the responsibility that we have as members of this assembly to be a part of the greatest institution on earth. And there will never be a greater than the Lord's true New Testament church. This is not something that men have formulated on their own, but as we are showing you as we preach through this, everything that is said in this covenant comes directly from the Bible. And if we could not prove that to you, we would not have this hanging on the wall. So, our church covenant. I want to read a couple of other verses at the end of Acts 2 today to kind of add to this. And we see what being in one place and of one accord really results in. At the end of the chapter, at the end of the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 souls were saved, baptized, and added, it says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So there is that one accord, oneness, sameness, continuing. Okay, And fear came upon every soul. There's reverence. And many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man had need. And here again, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So tremendous blessings lie ahead for the church that is in one accord and in unity and taking seriously what we have pledged to do as stated in the church covenant. We are in the second paragraph and as I said before and as most of you all know I gave each of you a copy of the church covenant who are members replacing the third person we with the first person I. Because when we look at it up here, it's all of us collectively, but it's the individual responsibility each of us has that make up what is up here. If it were not for the eyes, there wouldn't be no we's. Okay? We've covered the first paragraph already, and as I would remind you today, the first paragraph 
of the church covenant tells us how we got here. And it's all a work of God from start to finish by grace. We were quickened and led by the Spirit of God to be saved, to be converted, and upon professing Christ as our Savior, converted, we were baptized as Scripture commands in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the presence of God, angels and this assembly entered into the covenant one with another as one body in Christ. The covenant there again emphasizing agreement, a binding agreement. Okay? That's what a covenant is. So first of all, every believer is in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. When God saved you, you entered into a covenant with Him. What is that covenant? Well, very simply, the gospel says, you repent and believe and I'll give you eternal life. That's what Christ said. That's the conditions of the gospel, isn't it? And it doesn't get any better than that. So when, when you placed your faith in Christ and pledged to be His disciple... Him be your Lord and your Master. You have an existing covenant with Him all the days of your life. And that covenant is sealed in the heart of every believer by what the Bible calls the earnest of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. So, first paragraph is how we all who are members of Philadelphia Baptist Church got here. And we all got here by the same grace, the same Savior, and we are here by the same indwelling of the Spirit of God. So we should be able to assemble in one place, in one accord, with the same motives, the same goals, the same desires. And, and the second paragraph that we are in now tells us what we are to do and how we're to do it now that we're here. Okay? We remind you that the word engage is a word that could be substituted by the word pledge. And that word shows up in the beginning of each paragraph. We engage in the second one. We also engage in the third one. We further engage in the fourth one. And we moreover engage in the fifth one. So the word engage here could be substituted pledge. So we are pledging, as the first paragraph stated, in the presence of God, angels, in this assembly. We are committing ourselves, not only to the Lord first, but to each other here in this body, to, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, without which it's impossible, and in the only way for success is with the Holy Spirit, but none of us can say, well, I can't succeed because I don't have the Holy Spirit. If you're a member of this church, you're here because you have confessed to be a believer and have the Holy Spirit. So all things are possible. We can do it through the Holy Spirit. So with the Holy Spirit, we are to walk in Christian love together. Now, I will emphasize this again today because this is where it starts and this is where it ends if we don't get this right. It does not matter what we have, what we do, who we are, or anything else if we have not love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul made this clear. I devoted a message to this. 
If we do not walk together in love, we might as well not walk at all. Okay? So as children of God, we are called to walk. Walking means obediently following the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What does he do? He leads. What do I do? I follow. What did Christ say in John 10? My sheep hear my voice and follow me. So this is very natural. It is absolutely natural for God's people want to want to follow Christ. That is the supreme desire we have as believers. That's the only thing that has any lasting meaning and effect is to follow Christ. Because Christ will rule and reign forever. The material things of this world will all pass away. We are to follow Him in love. That love, first of all, I remind you, is to Him. Secondly, to each other. Alright? You can't get that wrong. If we love one another first and Christ second, then we've left our first love. The church at Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter 2 had that guilt and that rebuke of Christ. Well, you're doing all kinds of things right, but you left your first love. So we love Him because He first loved us, and because we love Him, we naturally love one another. That is natural. So we walk together in Christian love. And without this foundation, you can forget everything else that is said. Not only in the second paragraph, but in the rest of the church covenant. Everything is built on the Christian love. What did Jesus say? What was Jesus' emphasis on this? He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. He said, by this, John 15, 34, 35. 14, 34, 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples in that you love one another. And our church in particular has really added some more responsibility in that in that we bear the name Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And in Hebrews 13, it says, let brotherly love continue. So all of the Lord's churches, regardless of their name, are to be places where love of the greatest degree and manifestation will be found, and in particular here, because we bear the name Philadelphia. So, we are to walk together in Christian love. That's the first two in the paragraph. But there are four more that follow, and those four, again, are meaningless if we're not walking and manifesting and being obedient in Christian love. So, notice the twos. To walk, to strive, to promote, to sustain, and to contribute. And I point those out because this denotes activity. As the old saying goes in Arkansas, you're not supposed to be here a knot on a log. Just passively present. If God has put you here, which every one of you who are members of this church has told me he has, because I ask that question of everybody that wants to be a member of this body, are you sure the Spirit of God is leading you here? Because 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that 
He sets the members in the church as it pleases Him. He builds His body. He builds His church. And we want to make sure we're where He wants us to be. And so you are here, those are the membership, because you have professed to me and to the church that you were led of the Holy Spirit to be a part of this place. So it don't matter if you're the little toenail or the ear or the eye or whatever, we're all here according to God's design and purpose. And that's all that's important. We forget the big and the little. We forget the important and the unimportant because Scripture says we're all important if God put us here. All right? He's building. But he didn't put us here, again, to be knots on a low. He didn't put us here to sit in the bleachers and watch what everybody else is doing, you know. We are to, as it says, walk, strive, promote, sustain, and contribute. So this is activity. We dealt last week with to strive for the advancement of the church. And the three ways of that is knowledge, holiness, and comfort. Striving reminded us that it's not easy. We live in a fallen world. We live in an ungodly world. And to be obedient to Christ is going to be a striving. He did not hide that. He made that very clear. He said his first disciples he sent out from the first church, I'll send you forth as sheep in the midst of the wolves. That sounds like striving to me, doesn't it to you? He said in the world you'll have tribulation. That sounds like striving to me, didn't it? He said you'll suffer persecution. They'll do this, they'll do that, they'll do so forth. So it's striving. God's people will strive as nobody else does. Because we're seeking to be holy in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But don't get down on that. Again, because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Bible say about that? He is all-powerful. And greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. So we can't say that we're powerless and we can't. No, as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So, the advancement of the church is spiritual first and foremost. In knowledge, in knowing, in holiness, in doing what you know, and then the effect being that you are comforted and can comfort because you know and you are, you can and be a comfort to others. So today, to promote its prosperity and spirituality. Again, notice the word promote. What does that word mean? Very similar to advancing. Things that are promoted are in some form of movement, aren't they? Movement. Movement in a forward direction and advancement in that regard. And again, gravity will naturally take you backwards. But it takes effort and energy to pull against the tide, against the current, and move forward. So we have a task of moving against the flow of the world, the current of the world, the sin of the world, the God of this world, and promote to move forward the church's prosperity and spirituality. So again, I say to you, this is not a passive occupation. These things are not accomplished by showing up on church at Sunday and then wait until next Sunday before you think about it. That, that's no. We are engaged. Not only when we're here, but when we leave here. In fact, we get down the other paragraphs. The next paragraph, the third paragraph, is all about what we do not here, but when we leave here. Between Sunday to Sunday. Okay? So, promote 
the spirituality and prosperity of the church. Well, prosperity is something we certainly need to define today, don't we? Because it is so misguided. What does the prosperity or advancement of the church mean? Usually people gauge that by two things, and both of them are wrong. The first one is numbers. How many people? Well, the Lord's really blessing that church, prospering that church, because there's a lot of cars there and a lot of people going down there and a lot going on down there. Really? Is that how we gauge prosperity? And the second one is equally in error, and it goes by money in that regard. You know, how big is it? How elaborate is the building? What's the parking lot like? What's the activity or recreation deal, right? That's the way the, the world today in the 21st century judges churches' prosperity. And then to enhance that, we have the preachers preaching a prosperity gospel that's just as false as the two things I mentioned concerning the prosperity of the church. How do we measure prosperity in the church? It's not hard. It's not difficult at all. The Bible is very clear. And it's not by numbers, which we love numbers. And which is not being in poverty. We like money. We like to see the Lord's people give. And we like to contribute the Lord's money. You be used of the Lord. So we're not against those. They have their proper place. But really we covered it last week when we talked about knowledge, holiness, and comfort. It is not the superficial stuff that causes the church to prosper it's the internal stuff. And it's not the internal stuff within these walls. It's the internal stuff within you and me. That's where it starts. A church is prospering when it's advancing, as last week, in knowledge. And I will go on record as saying, I stand by Scripture and prove it to you, there will not be any good prosperity that will last without the individual member's prospering spiritually prospering spiritually in other words the truth of God's word before the superficial before the building programs before the activities and things like that because again we're talking about that which is eternal that which is long lasting that's which glorifies God and so prosperity is within, not without. That which cannot be seen, but will manifest itself if it is there. And spirituality goes hand in hand with it, because again, what are we talking about when we're talking about spirituality? We're talking about what you can't see. We're talking about what's within. Again, the Spirit of God. None of us have seen the Holy Spirit. He's within each member, each believer. If indeed you are a believer... You have the Holy Spirit. You are a spiritual being. There is an element to you that sinners who are dead in sin do not have. You are a living new creature. So you have a spirituality. True spirituality. You have an appetite for the Word of God. You love Christ and you love what Christ said. We live in a day and again where a lot of people want to love Christ, but they don't want to love what Christ taught. Don't separate them. If you separate them, you better examine your soul. 
The sheep not only love to follow the master, they love to listen to the master. They love to hear his words. They love to be taught by him. They love to be instructed by him. They depend upon him. They lean not to their own understanding. And so that should be the attitude of every one of us. So we are prospering when we are literally growing spiritually. You cannot grow, a church cannot advance, a church cannot promote or do anything forward direction unless there is truth in the church. Error will not accomplish it. Truth accomplishes it. Father, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. That's my responsibility, as I told you last week. My primary responsibility, my number one responsibility, is to feed the flock the truth of God's Word. After I give it to you, then it's on you. Your blood is off of my hands. That doesn't mean that I give it to you and I don't care anymore. No, I do care. I want you to get it. I want to see you benefit from it. I want to see God the Holy Spirit take what I give you and work it in you to where it blossoms, to where you grow. That's what we're here for, folks. That's what all this stuff in this covenant's about. That we grow to His glory. James put it very simple. I'm going to read it to you again by way of reminder. James 1 verse 22. He says... Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. As I said before, all of these two whatever is activity. It's doing. It's action. It's not coming and hearing the word of God on Sunday, walking out the door, shaking the preacher's hand. Well, that's a good message. Yeah, it was. And then you just go right back in the world and forget everything till next Sunday. No. James describes this. That's easy to do, by the way. And that's what most and many people in a lot of churches do. They never move. We was talking, making fun about sitting in the same seat. They show up at the same time, come in at the same time, sit in the same seat, come in, go out, nothing ever changes. That's not what God has called us to do. I'll read that scripture in just a moment. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And here it tells us what that's like. If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh on the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This man shall be blessed in his deed. And when it says look at himself in the glass, we used that illustration not too long ago when we preached on this. That's like looking at yourself in the mirror. Most of you ladies, I'm sure, did that this morning. I don't know about how many of you men did, but I'm sure probably none of you remember now what you look like. You just remember doing it. That's how casual it is. To be a hearer and not a doer. The scripture I referenced there briefly is in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. It is the last verse of 2 Peter. And his closing admonition is just this, and that is what promoting spirituality is. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and forever. Amen. So it is not only to intend, but to intend in anticipation. Anticipation of what? of being taught. You who are members of this church should come here expecting me to give you the Word of God. 
And anybody that goes into any church for any other reason than expecting to be given the Word of God should be examining why they're going or what for. That's why you go to church, is to be fed. God's people go to church to be fed. Feed the flock. And so that responsibility, as I said, that's my responsibility. If I want to deny that responsibility, I'll quit. But I am not very bright, but I'm bright enough to know that's what the Lord called me to do. Feed the flock. That hasn't changed. I'm not here to entertain you. I meet people and they talk about our church, about maybe coming to our church, and I tell them straight up, I said, don't come if you're looking to be entertained because I'm not going to entertain you. I'm just going to be candid with you. We preach and teach the truth, the gospel, and we, we don't get carried away and we don't put on drama shows and we, we're not there to entertain you. Church is not entertainment. It's feeding the flock. And I said, that's what I'm all about. So I'll just tell you straight up, if that's what you're looking for, come on. But if you're looking for somebody else, something else, you're going to be disappointed. I, I believe in being candid with people. I don't believe in getting them here and then telling them that. I want them to know what to expect. You should anticipate me to preach to you this Bible. Not give you what I think. Not tell you what we should believe because that's what the world's believing. But to give you chapter and verse for what we believe and what we're doing here. That's my duty. That's my job. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And that's why it's on the prayer request for you to pray for me. Because if I cease to do that, guess what? Y'all are in trouble. When any preacher ceases to do that, guess what? He can lead the flock astray. So pray for me, I pray. So we come here to attend, anticipate, listen, be instructed, learn, and then take what we learn and apply it and do it. That's what promoting spirituality is all about. To sustain, it says, its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. What's the word sustain means? If I tell you to sustain something, I don't, I'm not telling you to go look for something and find it and bring it, am I? No, if I'm telling you sustain it, that means it's already somewhere and you know where it is and you're really to maintain something that's already present, not look for something new, right? So sustain is a word that in Scripture means literally to uphold or to bear something that's already there. We sustain by supporting or maintaining something already present. And several things are mentioned there, aren't they? Worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. Those are four very core principles that should be present in every true New Testament church. A church should be identified by its worship, its ordinances, its discipline, and its doctrines. How do you know which church? We have a little track back there. You can read it if you want to, but I'll be brief here. That's in more detail. How do you know which church? When we live in an age where for some generations now people have been told, go join the church of the choice. Why not 1 Corinthians 12 pray that the Spirit will give you guidance to where He wants you to be because He sets the members in the church. Why don't we hear that? Instead of join the church of your choice. Well, join the church of your choice is a lot more popular. People like flexibility. People like casual. People like convenient. Sheep like being put where the Lord wants them. 
They like being in the Lord's will and the Lord's place. So if you're offended by being set in the church by the Holy Spirit, again, look at your own soul. The Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit will make you willing to be wherever He wants you to be. You should have the attitude of Saul of Tarsus when God saved him on the Damascus Road. Lord, what would you have me to do? And we could throw in there, where would you have me to do it? And how would you have me to do it? That's the submission of the Christian. So we are to sustain the worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. Because these identify the church and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is identified today as it has in all generations by the pattern of the church we read about in the New Testament. You just match it up. Well, this is who they were. This is why they were there. This is what they were doing. This is how they did it. And you match that up. You find the Lord's church today. If it doesn't match, it's not the Lord's church. Worship. I would be scared, and I think I probably would not want to see the poll if Christians were polled about why they come to church. This should be the number one answer. To worship. To worship. That should be it. But as I said to you, I remember years ago, 20 years or plus ago, I remember seeing a poll that said 70% of professed Christians that were taken in this certain poll said they went to church for social reasons. Well, that's, that's so sad, isn't it? And today we've got more entertainment now in the last 20, 25 years than we did then. And people are going for different reasons. But the primary goal of the church assembling is to worship God. That's, that's why in the Old Testament, the commandment, first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, body, and soul. That's worship. We're to do that every day. But especially when we assemble here collectively together in one accord in one place, we're here to worship. That's the primary goal. Scripture in uh, Matthew 18 and 20 reminds me of that Christ's own words that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Okay? So before you come here looking forward to seeing the other church members, we ought to come in anticipation of being in the presence of the Lord. Don't lose that. And I'm not presenting this rebukingly, but I know how easy that is. It's so easy. Because we can see one another, but you can't see the Lord. Okay? But as I've said to you, two people are always going to be in the Lord's church is the Lord Himself and the devil. Because the Lord has promised it and the devil wants to disrupt it. So whether you show up or we all show up or none of us show up, if two or three show up, the Lord's going to be there and the devil's going to be there. Okay? So that means we need to all be there because, <laughs> you know, we are to exhort, encourage, and everything one another. But these four core principles, worship. God is to be the focus. I'm not the focus of this church. I am not what makes or breaks this church. Okay? It is our worship of God and our sincerity in doing that that will make or break this church. When Christ spoke to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, He said some things that are so characteristic of worship of all times, but in particular today. He told her very bluntly in verse 22, He said, you worship, you know not what. And that is so true of our day and so burdensome 
I want you just pause for a moment and think about all the stuff that's going on in so-called churches that's called worship. It's a disgrace. It's a dishonor. It's a shame. It's a sham. And I think of these words when I witness or hear about some of that stuff. People worship, they don't know what. I mean, people are assembling in nice buildings, much nicer than this one. Very nice clothes, very nice cars parked outside. And their worship is no better than somebody who's uneducated, living in a hut in a jungle somewhere. Because worship's not about all this. Worship is about right here. And when you look at some of the things the Lord said to the Samaritan woman, you might think Samaritan, not Samaritan. The Samaritan woman, you might think he was being rude, but he was not. If he had been rude to the point of sin, then he couldn't have been the Lord. But he told her, you don't, wor- you don't know what you worship. But he said, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is the Spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? That means worship takes place right here whether we sing or not. If the truth of God's Word is preached to the flock, worship takes place right here. If we read the Word of God here, worship takes place right here. In spirit, it is invisible. It is internal. This is what the psalmist meant when he said in verse 5 of the 23rd Psalm, My cup runneth over. Nobody could see that outwardly, but it was happening in here. That's worship. Worship means to bow in reverence before God. In thanksgiving, praise, and rejoicing. And you know what? You can do every bit of that right where you're sitting without picking up a songbook or without even having to read the text of the Bible. You can do that through the Holy Spirit. You can worship. And that's how worship is. That worship is then manifested by our singing, our exhortation, our talking about the Word and learning and so forth and so on. But that's what worship is. Most things that most people do, sadly, are not worship. We want to worship God according to the way He said to worship. And that's in here, not me making you feel good in your emotions or in your senses. All right? God help us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The next thing that is said there is in sustaining the ordinances. This is really simple. There's two ordinances to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we sustain those ordinances as they are in the New Testament taught and exemplified by believers' baptism, which is immersion, by the Lord's Supper, which is closed communion, the membership of the local body that can be disciplined as often as with the elements of unleavened bread and and wine. It's very simple. Those are the ordinances. Clearly taught, clearly set forth, and exemplified in the New Testament. So we sustain those. Why? By practicing them exactly according to the example of Scripture and not altering them. And things do get altered over time. You realize that? 
I remember an example, I, can't, I think I know who it was, but I can't remember, so I won't give his name. It was a leading figure in American history. But he was a preacher, and they observed the Lord's Supper in that manner. They literally had the bread and the wine and just broke it, dispersed it, like the Scripture says. And at some point in time, for lack of better words, I'll say he got the bright idea that instead of actually taking it, they could just set, you could just set it up here on the table and look at it. And it'd be the same thing. So that went on for a while. That's the way they took the Lord's Supper. You just set it up here. And I don't know if said a few words over it or what. Well, guess what happened a little later on? Well, guess what? We don't even need to look at it. We don't even have to have the elements present here. We can, we can just sit where we are and think about it. Where we've got to today. You can drive through some quote-unquote churches and take the Lord's Supper like driving through McDonald's and getting a hamburger. You see, things, once you, once you fudge a little bit, or you bend a little, or you change a little, it's wide open to where you can end up. That, that example has always stuck me. So we sustain the ordinances just exactly like Christ did and the apostles in their ministry. Thirdly, also we see here discipline. To sustain its discipline. This is a very sad part of a church's responsibility, but it is a necessary one. Discipline of the membership means an excommunication from membership and fellowship of the church. Sometimes this has to be done. Many times it can be lax because it's hard, it's grievous. It's intended that churches are made up of families, and many of those families are related, so it's very personal sometimes. That causes churches not to do it. It is, however, a responsibility of the church, as we see at Corinth. They were lax in doing it for several reasons, and Paul rebuked them very severely for that. Why, do, why does a church excommunicate from its membership or its fellowship someone who is a member. And it's very simple, sin. Sin. If a member of a local assembly falls into sin of some kind, and that sin is addressed either by the pastor, members of the church, or whatever, and it is exposed, and that person refuses to repent of that sin, then that person is to be excommunicated from that body. With one desire and motive in mind, that that excommunication and breach of fellowship causes them to see their sin, repent of that sin, and be reconciled back to the church. If discipline is not administered with that number one motive, then it is administered wrong. Second reason then is that by so doing, the church purges out that which is inconsistent with its doctrines, teachings, and behavior, and keeps the body holy. This is his body. It's not our body. Discipline's not done out of prejudice or anything else is to be done with the individual who's being disciplined's well-being in mind, that this action will cause them to see, consider their sin, repent of that sin, and be reconciled back. That's why on our prayer request we have the disciplined members on there we should never start pr stop praying for those individuals 
Our desire is they be reconciled not. Our desire should never be good riddance. Glad they're gone. Glad they're out of here. Well, if they're going to do or continue in the sin, then yes, we must say they must not be a part of this. But that doesn't make us glad. It makes us sad. So, that's very clear. Uh, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5, put away a person that's habitually engaged in a sin and will not repent of it. Uh, to Timothy or to the Thessalonians, he said, withdraw yourself from every brother who walketh disorderly and not according to what we have pledged to God and to one another to do. Finally, and quickly, doctrine. It says here to sustain the doctrines of the church. Doctrines of the church are very important. We could spend a lot of time here, but very simply in this series, we want to keep it brief. What doctrines are we talking about? We're talking about the doctrine of the head of the church, Christ and the apostles. What did Christ and the apostles teach? Their doctrine should be our doctrine. That is the doctrine I seek to feed you with, is the words of what he said. Not what people have come up with since him. Not altering what he said. Not changing the doctrine with the times, but giving you the doctrine and teaching of Christ as he gave it to the first church. That's my duty. That's, not my, that's my responsibility. Not the doctrines of men. You know, a lot of church doctrine is just like uh, a McDonald's. I'm not picking on McDonald's today either, okay? But it's like a McDonald's menu or Wendy's or anybody else. It's always changing, isn't it? Why do they change the menus? Keep people interested. Keep people coming. Put something new out there. And churches function the same way. And it's a go-getter. It works. The devil knows that. If he can keep things new and changing and all that, man, people will gobble that up. It's not very good sheep food, but goats love it. And you can fill the church full of goats. No. We believe what the Bible teaches. That's it. Well, why don't we do what other children? Show me the chapter and verse. If we're missing something, I want to be the first to know. You know, if they're doing something that we're not doing and we should be doing it, I want to know, don't you? And if we're doing something we're not supposed to do and they're doing it right and we're doing it wrong, I want to know that too, don't you? That's what we're here for. Keep my commandments, Christ said. If you love me, keep my commandments. We don't care about what other people's commandments are. We care about what thus saith the Lord is. And Christ rebuked and condemned those who taught the commandments of men. Remember that? The Pharisees and all. We sang this morning... The last song, I believe, tell me the old, old story. Was that it? Or whatever. I like the old doctrine. I don't care for new doctrine. Because it can't get no better than the old doctrine. If Christ said it, you can't improve upon it. If Paul taught it and wrote it, you can't improve upon it. So we hold the old doctrine. And we're very skeptical of new doctrine. We believe in sustaining the old rather than opening a door to the new. 
not adopting new doctrine. A couple of scriptures, and we'll leave this with you for your consideration this day. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou have heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Holding fast to the old. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9 says... <clears throat> Be not carried away, carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. The devil is a master of new doctrine. All right? And as we leave, I want you to consider this very personally, those of you that are members. The devil wants to get new doctrine, false doctrine, in every one of the Lord's church. Sometimes it comes from somebody that is without the church. But most of the time, you know how it comes? Somebody that's a part of the church. Do you want to be that means? That which I'll put it like a dog and a flea or a dog and a tick. Do you want to be that host that the devil rides in and brings in a new doctrine? I don't, do you? Why would we want to do that? That would bring division, problems, mislead people, cause debates, church splits and all that. I've seen it, you've seen it, you've, we've probably been a hurt part of it, heard of it. I mean, that's how it works. Doctrine is very important. That's why if we're going to believe it, we need to go to chapter and verse and find it. If we're going to do it, we need to go to chapter and verse and find it. And when something new comes in, we say, whoop, no chapter, no verse. It's not welcome here. And lastly, we do not, again, want to be that person. We want to have the attitude of the disciples at the Lord's Supper. Somebody's going to betray me. What if I stood here and told you today that somebody's going to bring a heresy in this church? Our attitude would be not, well, I think it's so-and-so. I think it's so-and-so. Our attitude should be theirs. Is it I? Could I be the weak link that could allow that devil to get in my mind and bring that in? How do you prevent that? Maybe we covered it last week. Advance in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. Promote your own spiritual prosperity, and the church will prosper. Again, this is it. Make these things personal, and the church will do just fine. If you're doing it, if I'm doing it, and if we're doing it like the whole church depended on me, guess what? One accord, one place, unity, it all comes together and works out. May God help us to take these things seriously and seek to fulfill them by the power of the Holy Spirit to His glory.